0: Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of continuing education through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me, as always, is co host Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi. Hi, Steve.
1: Good afternoon.
0: How's it going? Good. I'm glad you haven't cut us yet, so... No, no, we're, we're still here. We're still going strong, so we got a really... Fun episode. It's going to be. A it's good one. it's one of those episodes we talked about doing before we even started the podcast. Right. Like, like a must do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to let you introduce it. Yeah, okay. So we
1: have so today we're going to talk about IOs and all the things we've learned yes. wrong and how to do them right. So our friend Scotty's going to come on and talk to us. He was one of the inventors of the IO, so I think Boom. he's the, yeah. the, the authority yeah. on this subject and talk about the science behind it talk about some pediatric IOs.
0: You think he calls it a myo? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? Let's ask That's him to change the name.
0: That's a bad joke for you, yeah. Dan, can I right now? <laughs> <laughs> <there> right now. <laughs>
2: All right. Uh, so I first met Scotty, what, last year at uh, at an EMS conference? Uh-huh. Phenomenal. The guy just draws you in, and he's an amazing educator, Uh, He cares so much about the subjects of uh, just anatomy and just just teaching good, good practice. Um, Great mentor. Great mentor. mentor.
1: And he wants everybody to just be better.
0: Yeah, that's it. Be better. That's pretty cool. Right on. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to him, getting to know about his background. And of course, I'm intrigued on the business side of things too because he's a guy who's in EMS and has businesses. So I'm looking forward to hearing about kind of the... A full picture with him. So should we get him on the phone? Let's do it. Let's get cool. him on the phone. Hello, this Scotty. Scotty, what's going on? This is Steve. How are you doing?
3: Steve, I'm so great. How are you today?
0: I'm good, man. It's good to finally chit chat with you. I've been hearing a lot about you and have been looking forward to getting you on this show for a few months now, man. So glad we got it to work what out. It?
3: It's wonderful to sort of virtually meet you or podcast meet you, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, right on, Scotty. The we had some questions for you, and then um, I've got an IO story that I think you'll really, really like. And okay, um, but really, we just want to pick your brain and kind of BS with you on the phone and see what we can piece together for an episode from this thing.
3: Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it, and fire away. Cool. Okay,
0: Scotty, I've got wonderful. some questions for you about the device itself. How did you even get involved in creating this device? Like that that to me is very interesting as far as how were you involved in any of this stuff? What, what's your background and so, how'd you get there?
3: So um, I'm a paramedic. Um, I grew up overseas. I came back. I was running a boat. Um, I got fired because the person on the boat um, threw some garbage over and I thought that that wasn't appropriate. So when I got back to shore and I was looking for a new job, I started working in the hydro. I was a lifeguard as a kid. So I started working in the hydrotherapy room of a large hospital scrubbing the Hubbard tanks. Um, I took a shortcut because the sign said I wasn't allowed to. I took a shortcut through the ER one night to go out to my car. And as I was walking through the ER, a paramedic came in and they were they were working a woman. And I thought that looked pretty cool. I talked to the paramedic who by the way is the EMS director for the city of Austin, Ernie Rodriguez. Um, so I talked to the EMS director at the time who was a young paramedic and I said, wow, that's pretty cool. What do you do? He explained, said, Hey, come to school. So I went, I was already going to college, but I had no idea how much I sucked at it. <laughs> so I wound up going to paramedic school in Corpus Christi. Um, it was in Corpus Christi that I get introduced to some really wonderful people. Um, um, a, a gentleman, for instance, that I worked with for years and years and years, who was just very inquisitive about everything we did in EMS. So my career started really early on And hey, don't just accept the status quo. We can make better things. Early on, I ran in and started working in the stiff neck collar or the issues in spinal care project and helped Clawson and Mannix and other people kind of get their materials together. Um, I left that particular EMS agency and wound up teaching in Victoria, continued working for um, for Victoria College and teaching all around the U.S. when all of a sudden I got asked to to interview for a flight team. I started working for San Antonio Air Life, which has nothing to do with um, with the way that Air Methods currently is, not bad or good. It was just a different agency. We flew in 412, and I spent a lot of time in the hospital. So working, and we were required to, so we spent time in the ICUs, both surgical trauma as well as medical, as well as pediatric, as well as blah, blah, blah. So we spent a lot of time in all these different places, cath labs, et cetera, and I ran into lots of people with a different time, and in that different time, we got to be very close friends with residents, et cetera. I was working at Baptist Hospital downtown and became very good friends with a whole bunch of people in the ER and got called down for a really terrible um, motorcycle accident to transport to the trauma center. And I ran into um, a physician I've seen in numbers of times, Larry Miller, little itty bitty older guy. And when we got through taking care of the patients, he said, hey, why don't you come back down? I've got this idea. I want to talk to you about it. I'm fairly enthusiastic. So when I see something, if it seems like it has potential, um, I really want to know more. So we started working on the project. It was in the late nineties. And then that worked its way all the way through. Um, He and I started working together. Fervently, he had a CFO, Eric Eisbren and an engineer, a guy named Bob Tickermeyer that then turned into um, Vitacare, which then grew into a company that we ultimately sold to Teleflex. But during the time I did keep flying for a little while, but then I would wake up in Moscow or in Shanghai and then have to get on an airplane, come back, and then jump on a helicopter and fly my shifts and then wind up back, say, in Rotterdam. And it wasn't working out real well. Um, I wasn't super good on the helicopter, and I was tired all the time when I was flying all over. So I went full-time with Vitacare. Vitacare ultimately grew into what it was going to be, and I am not a salesperson. I'm clinical. And I really had a hard time with the you're just there to sell. So I left Vitacare, got back on the helicopter just to get sane. But the genesis of, of being involved in that project, and there are many, but that's just one of them. And in the IO project, um, it really comes down to what I suggest to any of your listeners. If somebody has an idea, hear it out. And then if there's a way to support it and make it grow, um, you can do it. We sold our company for just under $300 million. And I'm telling you, um, I think it was worth more, but I think there are many other things still around on this planet that need to be fixed that are worth Mm billions. So I just think that it was an opportunity. Um, and I have, I have many friends like that. It's how I ran into, um, Dan and Holly. It's how, um, I just told you about Peter, pick a name and I can tell you about my experience with them because I just don't say no.
0: That's amazing. I think, no, I, I, you touched on a lot of things that, um, have gone through, (laughs) yeah, they've gone through my brain, um, over the years. I remember, uh, entering paramedic school and thinking like, okay, this is, I, this is the field I know I want to be in, uh, going through school and meeting a couple people and thinking to myself, okay, I, I would feel like I'm shortchanging myself if I just, if I just did the paramedic stuff and then went home every day and uh, we wanted to do something that was going to, you know, touch some lives in a different way make some, make something that makes people's lives easier or better. Um, and that's where my business partner, Brian and I got involved with creating some training materials and that morphed into continuing education and LMS and classroom based products and, and all this stuff. And so hearing you talk about kind of the journey you went through to meet the people you met that ended up getting to the place you're at, uh, definitely touched on some of the stuff that you and I've gone through. So it's cool. I think, I think it, I think it is identical. And I think what
3: my father, um, who passed away a few years ago said that, you know, you can touch one life at a time. You can just go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. Or you can create something and affect thousands or millions at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's what education does. It's what, it's what the creation of a new device or the modification in our case of an old device. That's all we did was modify an old device. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really think um, I really, and I've done other work in thoracic injury and surgical airways, et cetera. And those two are just the modifications of older devices and, 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 and including some of the newer science and what we know to make it better. So your, your quest to just, like, not accept the status quo, I think that's why you've got listeners. Your listeners are the same way. It's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. Isn't there something else I'm supposed to know? And the answer is always yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Totally. So when you you guys were sitting down to improve this, you know, older device that kind of already existed but you wanted to make it a lot better, was it always in the cards to make it a drill or a a gun, quote-unquote?
3: Okay, so... Um, so if you go back in the history, so one of the things that I, I really would suggest that your, your listeners do is just someday start, just take a, take a skill. Ah, I don't really care what it is. Let's just take IV therapy and you want to know about IV therapy. Start in the beginning of time. So just go all the way back into the 1400s and let's just start showing humans to animals and then let's start, you know, giving fluids, and then let work it all the way up until the modern IV catheter in your hand. All right, so I have a read file for just about every single one of those things, but my IO read file goes all the way back to 22. So we look at um, Dr. Drinker, and, and here he is saying, look, man, people are dying. We can't get fluid into them. There's got to be a better way. So he grabs Fluffy the rabbit, and he puts an IO in Fluffy, <laughs> and he figures out that he can get fluid into Fluffy without creating a problem. So then he tells all of his friends, he didn't say stick it in this bone or that bone. He just said, hey, if you put it in a bone, it works. You also have to go back and this is going to sound completely odd, but you go back, let's say the French. Have you ever heard the term suck the marrow out of life? Have you heard this term? Mm Yes. Okay. So we get it from cooking soup, but also if you're, if you go to Paris and Uh, Larry and I and and a couple of colleagues were sitting in Paris, and it was the funniest thing because, you know, here comes this cow bone, which has been cut in half, and it's sitting in front of us, and there's a couple of spoons and some salt and pepper, and you're basically just going to take the spoon, put some (laughs) salt and pepper on there, and eat the marrow out of the bone. Now, most of your listeners will immediately go, oh, my God, that's gross. I'm fascinated because I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, of course, it's just fat, but at the same time, it's vascularized. And so, look at this. This is me. I promise you, Drinker and the rest of them realized that. They knew that by, by accessing the intermedullary space, which was vascular, that they could reach the vascular spaces of Fluffy the Rabbit, ergo a human. So, they kind of knew all of this. We then said, look, no, or-, and, and I will tell you, this is the very first thing I heard from, from Larry Miller, um, no orthopedic surgeon. Um, just uses a spring and jumps into the bone. No surgeon does it. An orthopedic surgeon will either manually drill or power drill into the bone. So there's got to be a better way to get into the bone that is less traumatic, that is easier to do, that also does not cause a widening of the hole. So Larry's idea to set forth and it actually wasn't Larry's idea to drill into the bone, to be quite frank with you. It was a pediatrician um, named Dr. Rosenberg In um, it was a great man, um, Dr. Rosenberg from Chicago. Um, he and Larry sat down and they discussed an easy way to drill into the bone. Um, and so that then led to, okay, so if, we, if we're going to drill, because that's a, a better way, let's invent a better distal tip. So we invented a bi-beveled better tip, and that's, Larry, every day of the week. This is what cuts most efficiently into the bone. Then we blended the catheter and the distal tip together, and then the engineer said, okay, so what's the correct speed to get into a bone? Then what's the easiest reduction in electric motor? And then it just gets complicated from there and on. And you can, and not complicated, I mean, it's all very easy to understand. I enter this equation um, right at that time, but also in the, how do we translate from what we can do into a task analysis and then get people to do this very, very easily? And I would challenge any of your listeners to go back to some of the original Vita material. This includes videos, DVDs. This includes, um, uh, this includes the, the training and instructor's manuals and all the things that came with it. We hit this thing spot on. And we just realized that it was easier to get into bone drilling. It was easier to explain it to people than if I handed you a hammer. But I promise you, if I hand you a hammer, um, you can get into it really well. If I teach you how to do it manually, you can get into it really well. So you don't need the drill. It just makes it easier. And incidentally, I wasn't a fan of the name Easy IO. I, I hate that thing. <laughs> and the reason I hated the name is just because it sounds dorky. Mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, if you're gonna sell fish, um, you know, just put fish on the sign. Right. <laughs> and so this was easy and it was an I.O. and and that is Dr. Miller in a nutshell. And so that's how the thing um so so we, we set he set out definitely to drill because it was less cumbersome and safer for the patient and gave the operator more control. Now, on the spring loaded thing, I, I want to to tell you that I know Dr. Weisberg um uh Weissman Dr. Weissman. I know Dr. Weisman from from Israel. I don't know if he is still alive, but Dr. Weisman was just a great man and he postulated that there's gotta be an easier way to get into the bone. So could we could we use some kind of device spring loaded and power into the bone? And the answer is yes, you can. Provided that you're in a relatively soft bone. So their insertion sites, um, put you high on the epithesis, which was just fine. And those also worked. If they failed, they always could have hammered the device in. So you could have just flipped over the, the, what was at the time, the bone injection gun. Now the neo, if it doesn't go in, you can just flip it over and just hammer the bone, the damn thing the rest of the way in. Mm-hmm. But all of those. All the, the traditional IOs, so Cook and um, even with the modification to the Cook, which is the Dinkman, which has a little extra catheter tip, or sorry, a little extra hole in the end or a fenestration, the Cook needle, the Jamshidi needle, um, there's a lot of other needles that are also out there that um, relate to hematology and oncology. They all work just fine. So does the Easy I.O., the SAM I.O., all of those. It just comes down to... Um, geez, man, what can you afford? Mm-hmm. Um, I think IO should be, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not left or right, so any of your viewers that try to peg me politically will never <laughs> be able to do it. <laughs> but I believe that medicine, um, needs to be for everyone. And, and so in this particular case, that's an awfully left leaning statement, but I, I don't think it should be as expensive as it is. Sure. So when I look at someone like Dr. Scheinberg and his efforts, their, their system is going to be, um, very, very inexpensive when you compare it to other modern IOs. And I think that, that that's got some benefits to it. Is it as good? Well, I don't know. Somebody's going to have to do an inferiority study and determine whether or not it's as good, better or worse. But right now, the evidence suggests that it's, it's, it's going to be just fine. So could they do manual? Yes. Could you hammer it? Yes. Could you drill it? Yes. And yes, we started out to drill because we think
0: it's safer. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
2: Just, uh, I just want to hear you say it, sir. Uh, aspiration on every, uh, every IO. Should we get it?
3: Um, so that's a really, I love that question. So I'm going to ask you as a fellow clinician. Um, I want you to go ahead and sedate and paralyze your patient, but I don't really want you to confirm whether or not your IV or your IO are in place. I just want you to push the drugs. And then I want you to stand around and wait for something to happen to your patient. Um, How well is that going to go for you? (laughs) That's not going to go well. Yeah, there you go. So, um, and having pushed an ft I im to sit around and wait for a patient that's really in trouble to become paralyzed is, is probably one of the worst feelings you'll ever have in your life.
2: So Scotty, a couple of things. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. People out there are still doing the IOs the wrong way. And, even though we try to keep teaching them, they keep doing it the wrong way. They watch videos of certain other people do it, and they think that's the way it's supposed to go. Can you tell us how to do an IO? Start with humeral. All hand. right.
3: So let's so let's back up for just a second and go to the word or go to the phrase wrong way. So IO's been around since 1922. So the The actual physical act of placing a catheter, so a needle set, and then ultimately you take out the stylet, but placing a catheter into the intermedullary space is really simple. I think that from 1922 all the way through World War II and beyond till present day, I think we have endeavored, like everything in medicine, to make things very, very complicated. So IO is not complicated. Placing a catheter in the intermedullary space is simple, and any bone in the human body is acceptable for placing an IO. Now, we have our traditional sites, and we have those that, for certain companies, are FDA-cleared, but IO is simple. So, if we were to say, how do we do IO the right way? The first one that you got to get in mind is that you got to put the human body in an anatomically correct position. So, just... Let the let the person lay down on the ground or down on the stretcher, and then don't mess with them. Don't move the legs left or right. Don't, don't start manipulating anything. Just leave them alone. Now, let's focus all the way in on the humorous. You are currently talking to the guy who actually wrote the material that said, take the arm and fold it over the abdomen. I wrote that. Let me here and now promise you it's not true. Don't do it. It's wrong. The reason we wrote that is because we specifically didn't want a paramedic, a nurse, a physician to enter, to place the catheter into the vascular space or that neurovascular bundle in the brachial area. So we rolled the arm over and and we made all sorts of statements that suggested that by rolling the arm over, it sort of made the, the, the greater tubercle or that prominence that sticks out on your shoulder a little more evident. It's really not true. What we really did by rolling that thing over was protect the neurovascular bundle. The next thing that happens when you roll the arm over is that when you do place, let's just suppose you luck into getting the catheter into the intermedullary space of the humerus. When the patient relaxes or you move them, the arm falls back down and you lose the IO because it either compresses against the posterior deltoid or you abduct the arm away from the body and then you're totally home. So the moral of this story in humoral IO to do it right is put the elbow next to the body, just leave the arm where it is, find the base of the greater tubercle. And I'm sure every one of you listeners at home can figure this thing out, but find your thumb on the greater tubercle be at the base of the greater tubercle and then perpendicular to the bone, just insert the needle set. When you feel it fall, through the compact bone, into the intermedullary space, stop drilling. It's that simple. Or stop rotating your hand left or right, or stop hammering, or stop doing whatever else it is you do to place your IO catheter.
2: How's that? That sounds great. So, Scotty, so I can hear people just flipping out right now. 45 degrees to the table, 45 degrees to the patient, yes or no?
3: So all of these degrees are, are just insane what the the what was fda cleared and what is the only thing that is relevant is that when you are next to the bone that you are perpendicular to the bone so increasing your angle to introduce the catheter into say the humeral head or decreasing your angle to put it up depending on which way you're coming from are all wrong all of that will just add complication to the procedure all you have to do is put your thumb on the surgical neck of the greater tubercle, identify that, put the catheter, once you clean, put the catheter and then sorry, put the needle set perpendicular to the bone and introduce it. That's it. You don't want to wind up any place anterior or posterior. You don't want to be above and, and and let's do this. Let's let's talk about how IO flows for a second. IO flows arterially from the diaphysis to the epiphysis. So from the middle of the bone to the top edges of, or the top and bottom edges of the bone. When an IO is flushed, you're actually gonna push fluid not down to the middle of the bone. It's just exiting, essentially, if you do this correctly, right at the epiphysis. But if you introduce the catheter above the epiphysis, so I'm sorry, above where the, um, right up close to the joint, in this case, as as we're talking about the humeral access, if you put it in the humeral head, you've got to go opposite flow. So your flow is worse. The reality is you just want to put the indoor next to the outdoor. When you do that, you've got great flow. So all of these angles and all of this rhetoric that surrounds humeral use is just worth not even close to all the paper people keep re- writing about it. It's just not worth it.
1: So you're saying I've got my patient, they're on a backboard, or maybe they're just on the gurney yep. because we don't use backboards anymore, yep.
3: right? Sure, anything, um, doesn't I matter. got
1: their arms, next to their sides, thumbs up.
3: Yep. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Because when you lay, when you lay there, your thumb is either going to be up or it's going to be laterally rotated just a little bit. But even if your thumb is laterally rotated, that's your radial bone falling over, but it doesn't change at all the position of your humerus okay. because your elbow's sitting there. So your elbow is against the table and your arm is adducted close to the body. And as you slide your thumb along the humerus, as you slide that superiorly, you're going to run into the greater tubercle. When you run into the greater tubercle, you want to be at the base of that bump. You want to be at the surgical neck. You definitely don't want to approach it anteriorly because you'll bifurcate the long head of the bicep. You don't want to come superiorly because you're going to violate, and I do mean that in the in every sense of the word, violate is a terrible, ugly word. You'll violate the capsule of the humerus. And there are countless examples of paramedics and nurses and physicians violating the capsule of the humerus. Just don't do it. So to avoid that, all you got to do is about to be at the base of the greater tubercle. So it's a, it's a really prominent bump and you're just going to be at the base of it.
1: Alright, so 90 degrees, arms by the
3: side. That's yeah. it. You couldn't have said it better, Holly. It's 90 degrees, arms at the side, which is the way we're flying them anyway. Imagine it's a penguin from, I don't know, Happy Feet, and those little, those little flippers are right close to the body. That's all you gotta do. And if you could suck their pants, or suck their arms down in their pants, and cinch them back, or put a belt around their arms, you just don't have problems anymore. So just Happy Feet the hell out of them.
2: Like Love it, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Oh. No
1: one ever taught me about this penguin.
2: No, but yeah. no. Yeah. now we know. Yeah, there you go. Now I know. There you go. So, yeah. so back to the humeral So let's say we just started using Lucas devices at my fire department. And Wonderful. So, as you know, uh, you put the Lucas, you hold the hands up, uh, straight up. They're kind of uh, they're they're latched in on the Lucas device. How does yep. that affect Humeral placement if it's already been placed, or if you need to place a new one?
3: Okay, so let's let's go back to let's go back to using the Lucas or any any device like that. First of all, congratulations because um, it's just so much safer to use an automated device, regardless of the rhetoric that surrounds that, than to do it manually. Yes, One because yes. you get tired, two because you get injured. Let's just let's just put that out there first of all. Mm-hmm. Now, the city of San Antonio has great experience their using their Lucas. Outcomes are still pissed for because pretty much by the time you've got CPR going in the pre-hospital arena, you and I both know things are bad. But let's talk about use of the Lucas in relation to IO. So when you're going to put an IO in place, what you really have to do is think about the most efficacious place, the best place to put it during the sequence of events that you're about to, 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 to embark on. Most of the systems in this area will use the distal femur. The reason they use the distal femur, now I'm going to tell you, your listeners are going to flip right now, most of them, because, oh my God, distal femur, and if they're a little bit savvy, the first thing they'll say is, well, that's clear that for by the FDA for use in pediatrics, but not adults. So in Texas, the medical director decides who, or, or sorry, better yet, the medical director decides what procedures are done, not a committee. So a medical director can decide that they can use the distal humerus regardless of what any federal agency may stipulate or what any company may request. So we in this area have been using the femur on both adult and pediatrics for greater than 12 years with phenomenal success and tremendous outcomes. Now, and I do mean resuscitations, 15 scores that are just will blow your mind, all great stuff. So we don't approach a humerus in a cardiac arrest at all. Not at all. What we do is two finger breaths in an adult, because an adult gets two inches of CPR and walks on two feet, so it's two fingers. So we're two fingers above above the patella, midline, so directly through the patellar tendon, and we'll insert a 45, most often in an adult, we'll insert a 45 millimeter catheter directly into the femur. So we don't manipulate the humerus at all. When we teach and we do all of the procedural labs for the city of San Antonio at the direction of Dr. David Miramontes and Dr. CJ Winkler, when we do their labs, we teach, do not place a humeral IO if you plan to move the arm at all. So in other words, if they're already hugging a lupus, no problem. You could put it in. Just know that during, um, during your, your, your offload or if you go to the hospital and you resuscitate it, what's going to happen is they're going to manipulate the arm and, use, and lose the IL. So we all know that if you go to the humerus in a cardiac arrest, you're going to lose it. So we're sure of that. Now, that then puts you back over on the femur, and they have not lost those. Now, your follow-on question to that is going to be, well, but if we put in the humerus, couldn't we just use that securing device? Let me assure your listeners, I'm the guy who invented that. It's a piece of crap. It won't help. (laughs) It's still coming out no matter what you do. So if you secure an IO or if you secure an IV, you can still pull either one of those out, even though the word secure is there. All that tape does, IO or IV, is just remind you not to move it. Well, if you're moving the bone, you're going to lose the IO. So by manipulating the humerus to either place or remove the lucas, you're losing it. So the moral of the story is, don't put it there. So what should your West Coast um, folks do if they don't have femoral access available to them in the adult patient? Uh, Number one, turn back to their medical directors and get femoral use for the adult. Number two, should they use, which is better, a tibial IO or or a humoral IO when it comes to a cardiac arrest? And the science says by bioavailability, so drug at heart, let's just say that works. And, and I'm not a, I'm not for or against. I'm just saying drug to heart. So the amount of time it takes for a drug to go from the tibia to the heart or from the humerus to the heart is non-consequential. It's almost identical to reach a therapeutic level. It makes absolutely no difference. So if I were working a cardiac arrest and I had to make a choice, I would choose to not be near the airway or the chest or the arm, and I would prefer to be down by the extremities if I were putting an IO in. Do we have success with both tibial and femoral IOs in the context of a cardiac arrest? Yes, we do. Can point right to them, and it's published. How's that?
0: That's,
3: uh, (laughs) that's awesome. Good.
1: So to recap, if you don't have femoral IOs in your protocols, you need them.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So I just spoke with a medical director in your region, um, Holly, and there was a conversation about femoral I.O. And and it was one of those um, very pointed conversations. And that medical director realized quite quickly that that is something that he needs to place in their protocols quickly. Now, I don't know if you all work on a committee. I don't know how your state works. In our state, it's a very quick decision. It could be more of a process in yours. Let's talk about clearance for for femoral IO. No company, specifically um, the one that makes the most um, commonly used IO now in the market space, none of those companies are going to clear the femur for IO use because it requires an outcome study, and it requires probably at a minimum hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million. And nobody's going to waste their time doing it because it works. There aren't problems. And they just don't need to do something that people are already doing. So they're not going to clear it. And the FDA cannot tell a physician not to do something. It doesn't work that way. So in Texas, we just don't care. And we worked quite <laughs> hard. Um, and that's, that's not a political statement. It's just the way that, that medicine works in the state. But um, we worked really hard to get FDA clearance for femoral use in pediatrics. Um, And actually, I'm going to say his name. The little boy's name was Amalia. And if it wasn't for his mother and father and all of the work we did, um, the FDA never would have cleared femoral access for pediatric use um, with a very common IO device that's on the market today. Um, They would not have cleared it. And I can tell you that femoral IO placement, as well as anterior iliac IO placement, has been in the pediatric advanced life support realm for probably 45 years now. So it's been around a long time. I don't need somebody somewhere telling me I can't do something if science and evidence suggests I can. So we just need to kind of get medicine back away, Um, and again, not a political statement, but from the regulators and put it back in the hands of those who create the evidence or those who are willing to look at the studies.
0: Right on. Yeah. We're with
2: you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So where could we find, for those, those naysayers, where can we find that uh, the, the, the documentation?
3: So there's been quite a few posters published and scientific presentations given on both of those. I think, um, Holly, I don't know if it works for you all, but I'd be happy to forward the posters, both from the University of Texas Health Science Center, as well as from um, a couple of private groups here that had published. Um, I'd be happy to send those over to you. Yeah, you'd also great. find reference to both the moral access and others in a couple of other, like you'd find it in the PDF on flight support textbook. You'd find it in a couple of places like that. Um, there's also been of late, I think, oh, uh, Peter Antevi, I just spoke with him a couple of days ago. Pete had done a presentation at Eagles on why are we still essentially putting, um, IOs in the tibia? We should be using the femur. Um, I do have that presentation here on my computer right now because Pete and I were having a conversation over his suggestion that you, you don't, that you kind of go medial with your approach to the IO. And I, I, I fervently disagreed with that. And now he understands why. Um, and it had to do with, um, inadvertently hitting some large vascular structures posterior to the femur. Um, So bottom line is midline approach, and I'd be happy to send those over to you. So there's quite a few posters, some good documentation, and some good resuscitation, um, some good case studies that I'd be happy to send.
1: Awesome. That'd be great. And while we're talking about um, pediatrics and FDA, can you tell us a little bit about doing humoral IOs in pediatrics?
3: That's been cleared. um, I want to say 2007 or 2008. Um, We were working on that almost from the get-go. When we... But we then went further and we started looking at different locations for I.O. So we, too, started at the tibia with a 25-gauge, sorry, with a 15-gauge, 25-millimeter needle. And then we progressed to a smaller needle um, because we were forced to do that, not because it's good. And then we progressed to a longer needle. And unfortunately, we had to stop at the uh, 45-millimeter needle set. That's the length. Which your listeners would find if they took a jam apart, it's also 45 millimeters. So a jam the old blue one, is 25 when it has its little collar on it and 45 when it doesn't. So the blue easy IO or, um, the SAM IO and let's see what's the NEO. Those are all 25 millimeters long and they are 15 gauge. Then you, and, and that's kind of a government Thing that it all kind of worked that way. Then we, we started getting longer catheters. I did a lot of work in Detroit at Henry Ford and we realized we needed longer needles. Not because people are fat, but just humans have gotten bigger for all sorts of reasons. Um, We wanted a much larger catheter and we weren't able to create that because the FDA um, felt that was too dangerous in the hands of a provider. Now, since I'm on the length of the yellow 45 millimeter needle, I'll tell your listeners that the reason it's yellow is because I thought it was funny. So it has nothing to do with science. It's just yellow. fats yellow. I thought it was funny. I made it yellow. So there, there's some little things like that, but yeah, it, it, it was fun. And, and you know, I share the same air and the same ground that you guys do. So it was, to me, it was just logical, but If you look at the 45-millimeter needle set, um, the city of San Antonio, and I I just got a case study back on Wednesday uh, or a case report back on Wednesday from one of our EMS fellows, so a physician that works in the street. And he was um, recounting to um, our anatomist and I, Akai and I were talking to him, and he was um, recounting how they did an open IO with great success on a patient, and it worked real well. So if this is the first time your listeners have heard that, you're taking somebody with a BMI greater than 50, no other access point that you can find, IV or IO, so you'll do an open IO. So you'll take a scalpel, make about a one-inch incision, two finger breadths above the patella, and then you'll cut through the epidermis, dermis, and sub-Q, 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 until you get down to the patellar tendon, but not cutting the patellar tendon. And then you're able to put your IO in. So an open I O has also been done in history, but now it is a routine component of care provided in this region um, by 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 a lot of services, including flight. But the reason they do it is only when they're confronted by very very large patients who cannot get access any other way.
2: Wow, that's amazing.
3: So back to we were going back. I'm I'm so sorry, Holly. You asked me another question. Oh, and that's was, okay. Uh, What was it? It was related to what?
1: We started talking about um, doing the Humeral I.O. in pediatrics and how it's been Ah, FDA approved for a while.
3: Okay. So, yeah. So, Humeral I.O. has been approved for a while, but there was a little sticking point. So, about 2005, 2006, I was working on it, and nobody had ever really accessed the Humerus for I.O. Both Larry Miller and I, and, and you really do need a podcast with Larry Miller um, he is the principal inventor of the EZIO. He's an emergency medicine physician with a surgical background and he has, um, he has a 3D computer aided drafting mind. So, and Larry is super fun to talk with. He's a pilot, but he's a, but he's an EM physician. But nonetheless, Larry and I were working on this project and we just postulated that the humerus would flow better than any other bump. We had no proof. Um, so we started working in the lab, and we got fluoro on it, and we figured out that it really did flow well. So we really, with very limited evidence, petitioned the FDA for clearance to take the EZIO and put it in the humor. And really, with with minimal science, we got clearance. Um, conversely, and I'll jump ahead for a second, we worked really hard to get the, the, the femur FDA cleared and had volumes and volumes of science and got declined. So, so I weird. just can't I fathom. Yeah. yeah, totally weird. But when we were in the humorous and, and we got it cleared for the adult, we, spawn, we simultaneously went at pediatric um, humoral IO with very little evidence and got cleared. And so we were a little bit cautious. Now, let's talk about your reservations, historic reservations with IO related to pediatrics. And every one of you guys and all of your listeners will say, hey, my problem with pediatric IOs is the growth plate. Okay, so that is not a problem. There is papers published on it. If you violate the growth plate with a needle, you're not going to do anything to that bone at all. You and I both know that if you fracture through a growth plate, that is a whole nother story. And now that child will have developmental issues. But putting a needle in a growth plate isn't an issue. When you inadvertently put a needle into a growth plate and let's say you try to infuse because the bone hasn't ossified and because the vascular structures aren't quite the same, it doesn't flow as well. So you want to be below the growth plate when you place your IO. So far so good? So what we said was, hey, let's just, since we know that you're going to be able to do this in a kid, let's just say that below the age, and I'm going to pull this out of my right now, but I I think I said six or eight Mm -hmm. when I first did it. And the reason that I wrote, you know, not um, suggested, I I can't remember exactly how I wrote it, you know, not um, not suggested for patients under the age of eight or something like that. We were just pulling that out of our rear. We really didn't know. And now that we've had a lot more experience, um, I I have zero reservation personally, nor does Larry, for placing an IO in a humerus of a child. And nor should any of your your listeners. Placing an IO in the humerus of a child is completely efficacious, flows really well. You're just not gonna have a problem. Now, your your problem with the bone is that and, and of course I have cross sections and Holly, that's a you do have those. So the cross sections that I created in the gosh, that's gonna be about two thousand and five too. I, I have both an infant and a toddler. I went to the University of Texas Health Science Center now called UT Health went down to the lab, and I sectioned a toddler and an infant at all of the insertion sites, and then I shot images of it. So you can put that up for your listeners. It's in that slide series, Holly, that we have, okay. and you'll find it toward the very end. And that then, we, we put the catheters next to the bone, and you can appreciate how relatively small the bone is, say, in an infant, in relation to the size of your 15-gauge catheter. So it's incumbent upon the end user To not only find the bone, where the margins are, anterior, superior, for instance, put your tip on the bone, and then just as you feel it fall through the compact bone, take your finger off the trigger. What I recommend that your users do, like everybody who's ever going to put an IO in, should take a raw egg, and then that raw egg, you should hold that in your hand, and then get your IO device, whichever one it is, either... SAM or the I.O., it doesn't work with the Neo because that's a compression device, but you take that IO and you gently place it into the shell of the raw egg without fracturing it. If you can take the same egg and put 15, 20, 45, 50 insertions in without fracturing the egg, then you get IO insertion. Then you get what the feeling is to go through the compact bone. And really, it's a feeling. It's not a visual thing. It's a tactile thing. Do um, you want a funny story related to that?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
3: So James Orlowski um, is really what what Dr. Miller and I would consider to be the father of modern IO. Um, James Orlowski wrote a paper, My Kingdom for an IV, and he published it. He was a pediatrician working in Chicago. He actually went overseas. He was in India, um, and he was treating um, some really significantly sick children. And he came back and wrote a paper. And you can look it it, My Kingdom for an IV. And what he was really saying is, hey, how come all these people in other countries are using IO and we don't? I would give anything if I had a sick child in front of me to have vascular access. Maybe we should relook at IO. So he wrote this paper and that was really the rebirth of IO. We used it in World War II, but we really hadn't been using it since. So the reason that some of your older listeners were started putting IOs in chicken bones is really because of James Orlowski. Well, I was at ASEP in Chicago, and it was in the early 2000s. I can't remember exactly where, but I was at ASEP, and this guy walks up, and he goes, um, in a very deep voice, he goes, excuse me, I am looking for Scotty Bulliter. I said, no, I'm Scotty. And he goes, I would like to know, are you the young man that suggested people put an IO in a raw egg? I said, as a matter of fact, I am. And he goes, well, I am James Orlowski, and I suggested that they try chicken bone. So I guess we know which came first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that
3: was like one of my finer moments in medicine. And I'll never forget it. And, of course, I didn't realize um, back then that I was talking to one of the, you know, one of the greatest clinicians in the history of medicine. And so I've been fortunate kind of before gumping medicine to run into people like that. But that was one of those (laughs) moments. But your listeners, bottom line, to recap, um, you should put them in a raw egg and the humor and to practice feeling that drop. And your listeners should definitely place IOs where they need them without reservation.
1: And and real quick with that is um, another way that I think I was taught to do humoral IOs is to bury it to the
0: Mm -hmm. hub. Go to the hub. And what you're saying is no matter where
1: you place it, you're going to go in until you feel. The resistance give and stop.
3: Yeah, so I I'm I want to avoid having you do nothing but bleep me for the <laughs> next five minutes. Oh, you
1: say whatever. So I'm gonna, gonna
3: try. Well, I'm gonna try and not say anything that would prevent your listeners from understanding this. Anybody who ever taught anybody to bury anything in medicine is an <laughs> clown. So there is no way that IO. You should never bury an IO. When you feel it fall, it's in. If you bury it, so the the the, the proximal side of the IO, so the flange of the IO where it connects with the, where the where the catheter connects with the hub. It was never intended to be the base. So like the stability portion of the IO. And anybody who teaches that way really legitimately has it wrong. So you just want to feel it fall into the bone and you're there. Most importantly, you don't want to move the IO once you place it. So you don't want to wobble it left or right, which is why all these people come up with these stability devices and everything else. It's in a bone. Just don't move it. But if you bury it, I promise you, you are going to see compartment syndrome. So there's not a doubt in my mind. One day. If your whole premise is bury it every time, I promise you one day you're going to have a complication to explain that will that will leave you with a scar in your brain that you will carry for the rest of your life, and none of us want those.
0: No, absolutely not. That's awesome yeah. information. I've uh, yeah. I've man, I've probably learned from four or five different people who I think probably watched some videos on YouTube and then uh-huh. started teaching them to yep. Other folks, and I don't think any of them have said anything but bury it. Just go all the way down. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, I three. don't want to yeah. take.
3: I don't want to suggest that any of your hallowed instructors and those people that you have great respect for. I don't want to to say anything that's really derogatory, but they're <laughs> clowns, and they really <laughs> totally need to go back to what is fundamental science and. And this is a critical thing, and I just don't get where that comes from. If your listeners will go back to some of the first, um, electric IO placements. So the first time that we used, and I try not to use product names, but when we were first using the Easy IO, we put out a video. Your listeners can find it. There'll be a guy, I had hair at the time, but I was wearing green scrubs. There'll be a guy putting the IO in. He's wearing a white lab coat. So me, Scotty, and green scrubs, Larry with a lab coat. So that is the first time we use that drill on a live human. Now, believe it or not, excuse me, Larry already has one in his leg because I had put it in him first. <laughs> it appears that I'm the one getting it first and I'm not. And so when you see Larry place the IO in my leg, he does bury it. But I am, at the time, I was six foot four. I swim every day. That needle is short. So the 25-millimeter needle set did wind up being placed deep in me because I'm a big guy. But it had nothing to do with how you should place an IO. But if you go back to the training material for that particular company, you will clearly see that it says, hey, here's here's too fat, here's not too fat, here's where the catheter goes. So there's some good cross sections. That demonstrate, hey, you put it in. And I actually wrote all of the note sections in the back of all of those lines that it says, you, when you feel the drop, stop prosecuting the insertion. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think I use the word prosecute,
2: but you get the point. I like it. Me too. Yeah. It.
1: I'm going to yeah, using Yeah. It
3: was because I watched a, a police show last night. As as
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Scotty, quick question for you. So, back to the pediatrics. So, if we're going to do that humoral, or we're, are we using the pink? Use the-
3: so, so yeah, this, this is a great question. So, the first one, if if I were approaching, a, if I was approaching a baby all the way through toddler, I got to tell you, I'm headed for the femur every time. I, I a hundred percent could not agree more with Peter and Heavy and any of the other pediatricians that I work with. So, we're femoral almost a hundred percent. I would, it would be very rare for you, for me, to wind up using the humerus. In a child, because there's so, so little extremity and so much body, and there's so limited, such a limited amount of space around the head and the neck and the chest when I'm working that you're bound to lose it. Mm -hmm. So I'm headed for the femur, but let's do address the color thing for a second. So I want to make sure that your your home viewing audience or listening audience understands that the, the pink needle is too short. It was designed specifically because, and I'm talking about the 15-millimeter, 15-gauge needle. It was designed specifically because we had to get the FDA to agree that the EZIO could be used in humans. In order to do that, the reviewer specifically said to us, children are very small. Your needle is really long. We then said, children are fat. We need the long needle." This just went back and forth and back and forth until we were not going to get clearance to use the EZIO in children unless we made a smaller needle. So we made a smaller needle. But I'm telling you, I have traveled to Haiti. I have traveled to Africa. I've been all over the world. I, my mother passed away at about 86 pounds. The catheter was too short to even use on her. The pink needle is worthless. Now, there is a new company that came on, and they also have all three needles. They, too, made a pink needle of the same length. I had the same conversations with them, but in order to market the thing, they created the same color scheme so that everybody would be comfortable. So my answer to your question is, um, no, the pink needle is wrong. Don't use it. Definitely don't put it out. So what is important when it comes to placing an IO needle? What's important is the depth, not the age, not the weight. It's just how far is it from epidermis to dermis through the subcutaneous tissue until the tip of that needle is sitting on the bone. Once it's sitting on the bone, as long as you have about, and I'm going to tell you it's about five millimeters, but as long as you have in the traditional sense, at least one black mark above the skin, you're going to be okay. But if you have multiple, multiple black catheter marks above the skin, effing don't bury the thing because you're going to go through the bone. So you really just need, um, so so the pink one is going to fail more often than not. Um, uh, Holly, inside the material that you have, the slide series, and you're welcome to give that to all your listeners. Um, I do have a latest version of that. I'd be happy to give that to you as well. Yeah,
0: that'd but be in great. that
3: material, you'll find it from, you'll find an infant with femoral access in it. Um, it's pro it's really close to those cross sections, but you'll see um, the infant's femur and you'll see the aspiration of blood. And that happens to be a blue needle and it's elevated the, the catheter itself. You can see space between the catheter and the hub. Um, and it's, it's working just great. No trouble whatsoever.
2: Wow. So, great information, Scotty. Totally. <laughs> the other side of that is we
3: do do all of our labs. So both your, your basic labs that you use in the pre-hospital setting, um, those that are clear waved and everything, blah, 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 blah. So your I stats, the whole line, we get all of our labs off of bio. We never hesitate works just fine. Nice. So, um, nice. there are a lot of people and there's good paper on that too. Good. I believe I know Diana Montez. Um, she's a nurse used to fly with her. Um, she was on a paper on lab values that was published. There are quite, quite a few of them.
0: I've got, um, one, I call it a case study more of just a, sure. You won't, you won't believe this. Maybe you will because you have been working with these IOs for so long, but, um, want to go through the story and then, uh, yeah, we'll just kind of, after that, we'll wrap it up. Okay. So, uh, I work at a fire department, uh, that has a ambulance company, um, or fire based EMS essentially. And yep. we get dispatched. I have an intern working with me at the time and we get dispatched to a county courthouse for a person that's in seizure. And.
3: Okay. And when you say intern, are you talking about a resident or are you talking about a paramedic
0: intern? A paramedic intern. Yeah. Good. Okay. Okay. Good. Right. Uh, good clarification there. So we arrive, uh, we're, we're led up to one of the, uh, trial rooms by uh, a deputy. And we walk in with all of our gear and there's this, uh, defendant who was walking. He had just given his testimony is walking back to his defendant's chair, uh, next to his lawyer. And he passes out, starts going into full body seizure and, uh, apparently had a longstanding history of epilepsy and a bunch of other things going on. So, um, we're kind of like, oh, okay, we're in the middle of this packed courtroom. There's, uh, you know, jury, 10, 12-person jury uh, over in the corner. There's the judge. There's both sides of the defendant and the prosecution teams. And then there's, I would guess, probably 40 or 50 people sitting in the, in the stands of these little pews. So we walk up, and my intern is like, all right. And, this-
3: and he's status, this patient is status seizing for the entire time?
0: Yeah, he's the not stopping. You him.
3: guys to get there? Yes. And, and get up there and now you're there. So he's status up for us. But because no doubt about it. We're on.
0: Yes. Exactly. Very Probably, nice. I mean, got at got this point, clear 10, 12 minutes seizing at this point. Oh um, yeah, for sure. And so we, <laughs> my intern is like, this is what I want to do. I want to put an IV in this guy and I want to um, give him some versed and, you know, go yeah. from there. I'm like, perfect. Cool. Sure. So he goes for uh, his first IV at the IC, blows it looks back at me like, uh, I'm sweating a little bit. Like I got to get this next no one. No pressure, right? No, no pressure, pressure. Right. Cause he's got like everybody watching him. And Misses the, the second one. Like, like, I mean so bad that like, you know, it's bleeding under the skin and it, it just looks horrible. Right. So he looks, he looks back at me and he goes, well, um, we need to do an IO. I go, cool, let's do it. And he, he gives me this look and I always tell my I always used to tell my interns, I don't really get many anymore, but, um, they used to tell me I used to tell them, excuse me, when you get stuck and you don't know what to do, just turn back and give me the look. <laughs> like the wide eyed, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Just give me that look and uh we'll step in. we we'll, you know, we're not gonna hang you out to drive. We're gonna, you know, do what we need to do, but we gotta get you yeah through this, whatever you get stuck in.
3: Yeah, that's cool.
0: So we get the IO out and he's like, Can you do it? And I go, Yeah, totally. I'll I'll knock this out. So I have this routine and like most people do, we all have our routines of what we do. Yeah. And when I get the IO, we call it the IO gun. When I get the IO gun out, um, I put my needle on and I test it. So I, you know, you know, kind of a thing, right? <laughs> sure. Well, yep. you can imagine when I put the needle on and I'm just going through my motions, I've got, you know, 60 or 70 people staring at me and they hear this drill go. <laughs> and you could hear a couple. Clear of them, the room. Yes. A couple people are like, what the heck is that? And so, um, we, uh, we, we do the proximal tibia, uh, for our protocols is one of the spots we can do. And so that's where we went, uh, first and, when we started drilling into the bone, people were, you could hear them go, oh my, oh my God, what are they doing? One person starts like kind of dry heaving a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and she's just completely like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe what's going on. And the lawyer, the legal team, you could tell they're looking at us like, we might have a case here. Right. Like, right in the middle of our, right. you know what's going on. And you're, you're off. <laughs> yeah. Um So we, you know put this thing in, no problems, draw back, get marrow, you know, flush the line, um, give some Versed through it. And the guy wakes up and he's coming to, it takes about 30 seconds and he, he kind of sits up and he says, what the f did you put in my knee (laughs) in in front of everybody? And they're like, yeah, what, what did you put in that guy's knee? And so anyways, we, we put this guy on the gurney and we, we wheel him out and transport him. But, uh, that's my, I can't believe I just did that in front of a all bunch of people, people. I o story. Yeah.
3: You know, I have I have heard that story um probably probably not less than a thousand solid times. And the reason no and and so I followed the first twelve hundred insertions, every single one of them, um, including all that we had sent overseas in from two thousand four to two thousand five. I followed every single insertion. So when you dialed the number because you wanted to report your IO usage and discuss either success or failure or anything, you got me on the other end. And it was worldwide, and it worked for a long time. So I heard this story. And what's interesting about it is that that people, even though this has been on countless television programs, ER and Grave Anatomy and just freaking everywhere, you would think that, that the general public sort of gets the idea of what we do in medicine. But I think that, that what's missed is that most folks don't, sorry, most in EMS don't realize what we consider to be quite routine is like everybody else's, not only their worst day, but they've never seen a damn thing. They think when they watch these reality TV shows that they've got a pretty good bead on life and they have no clue. So totally. when you show up to do something, it it really becomes it, it just you're just slapping them in the face. So when you pull out your driver, not a gun, when you pull out your <laughs> driver, <laughs> what you're happens? You pull a gun in the courtroom, that, right?
1: Yeah.
3: Right, yeah. So real good plan there. So you pull out the driver, <laughs> and then when you place it, so we found, and this is another thing that draws back to some of the other conversations we had, but uh, but placing an eye on the tibia, I'm going to tell you, it hurts the most. It flows the least, it's mm-hmm. the least effective, and it is the one with the most complications. Wow. So while it is familiar to you, I just gave you four reasons why you shouldn't. So <laughs> yes, now I have had, I have personally had seven IOs, several of which I have placed all in my very own, in my own office to figure out one more thing that we were trying to figure out. I will tell you that a tibial IO when you place it, it is not uncomfortable. So going through the skin against the bone, then penetrating the periosteum into the comp, or, or through the compact bone into the cancellous bone, that is not uncomfortable. What is uncomfortable is the nervous structures throughout the intramedullary space. They are they're visceral nerves. So you've got you've got you've got nerves on essentially you've got um, somatic and visceral nerves. Uh, or sorry, somatic and what the hell is it somatic? And, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, you, you got me here at the end of the day. Yeah. But anyway, one so so one feels like you're slapping across the face. The other nerve is very visceral in its nature, and that visceral that visceral response is like you getting kicked between the legs. So placing an IO is about like getting slapped. But when you start infusing through an IO, that you might as well be pinching your testicles with a pair of pliers. So even, <laughs> even if you don't have them. So it's really pretty uncomfortable. So when you, when you resuscitated this guy, the fact that most people don't use a 2% preservative free lidocaine, um, even if they buffer the lidocaine, which Mark Peel is another guy you should have on. Mark Peel is one of those. He's a pediatrician out of Wake Med. He would be the first one to tell you always buffer your lidocaine. And when you do that, you could have almost provided Um, a tolerable IO. Now, tibial means tolerable if you, if you take care of it with lidocaine. Humeral, I've had humeral IOs, um, on the, um, at Medina, which is where the PDA strain, um, we were at Medina and I ran the track and then, and we were doing IV IO comparative and, and I had a humeral IO without any anesthetic and I could tolerate it. Femoral IO, uncomfortable until you get lidocaine then totally tolerable but i could see that guy sit up we used to we used to to say levitate
1: Mm -hmm. um
3: i took care of a woman that was shot with a 44 and i promise you her io hurt more than the gunshot wound (laughs) and the massive hole she had so so your users must do something about the discomfort in patients who are obtunded but will become alert or where you're beginning at alert, let's say if you're doing sedatives, paralytics, or antibiotics or anything like that, you must mitigate the discomfort. Absolutely. So it's a good story. But man, I've I've heard that a thousand <laughs> yeah, times I have heard that one a thousand <laughs> times. <laughs> I, 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 I think I know. I think it's really great. Well right. it on you guys. This Scotty. was super fun. It was Did a we blast, get to man. do this again? It was the let's best. do a let's do a thoracic one. Yeah. Let's do a surgical airway one. I mean bring it on. Let's Heck see yeah, more man. <laughs>
2: yep. All, All right. right, we'll give sure Jen our
3: love. love.
1: Okay, love you guys. Oh,
3: she's she's sitting right across from me. She's waving it, y'all. All right. Yeah. We'll see you soon, okay. sir. See you soon. Bye. Bye.